Well, good morning, Anthem Church. Hopefully you guys are finding us online. Uh, I know they had a little bit of challenge, but I'm glad you guys are with us. And so my name is Stan Hayek, one of the pastors here on staff. And so we've got a couple weeks before we start our summer series in the book of Matthew. We'll be going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so this week we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open, open them up there. And so um, yeah, I just want to catch you up a little bit that's happening in the Hayek household this week. Uh, Hannah, my second-born daughter, turned eight the other day. Uh, and they're getting, my kids are getting, I've got four daughters, they're getting to the age where we're starting to do some family competitions. Uh, one of those being kickball has kind of been a new thing. But this past week, we discovered, like, the foot race, the oldest of competitions to see who's faster and figured out as a dad uh, how to create the healthiest competition possible that if I stagger my kids for accounting for age and speed, could get them to finish about like virtually the same time, which led to epic competition and lots of tears. Uh, ends up my children are fairly competitive. They get that from their mother. Um, but it's been, it's been fun. But there's this desire that they have to win, to hear the affirmation that comes from like, good job, you, you won. And so, uh, and I think at the core, we all desire to be validated. Young men, I think, especially want to hear well done. And I think that's, that's some of the reason behind that overly obnoxious, competitive kid in gym class in high school. You know who I'm talking about, right? Like just, the, and you think, oh, he's arrogant, he's cocky. Honestly, I think probably at the core is a desire for that young man to hear Hey, you're, you're good. <laughs> Validate you. And I think it's why you see this carry into, they, they don't leave it at gym class in high school, in college. I don't know about what they do now, but back in my day, they gave t-shirts to intramural champions. And that was like a badge that you got to wear around campus that said, I am the best. I have proof. It is written on a t-shirt. And those things were so coveted. I mean, people would literally get in fistfights during these competitions, ping pong, football. It didn't matter because there was a t-shirt on the line that said, I am a winner. And I think at the core is this desire to be validated because I understand, born a male, but the question is, like, how do I know if I'm a man? How do I know? How can, I, how can that be proven? How do we define manhood? Do you, when did you become a man? Like, is it, is it puberty? Is that when you become a man? Is it a certain age for everybody? It's like, oh, 18, you can buy cigarettes, and that's when you're a man now. Like, when, when does somebody become a man? And if we look to music to kind of help define manhood, not helpful, Okay. Because country music, country music, y'all, you're a man if you drive a big truck, you drive it down to the bar and get the girl. That's what country music would say a man is. Rap music, not any more helpful. Rap music's like, yeah, if you get the money, get the boo, get the car, the rims too, yeah. No, no, that's not manhood, right? Classical music. I don't know. Nobody listens to classical music, so I don't know how they would define manhood. So I'm joking, that was for my wife. Please don't email me explaining how amazing classical music is. I'll take your word for it. But, but if we look to music to define manhood, it's not helpful. Because manhood, by our culture and by music, all that stuff, oftentimes is referred to by these external things. It's about cars, money. And if it's about these extra beard than you, 
have a nicer car, live in a bigger house, be more athletic. God's word gets to define manhood. And God's going to define manhood not based on outside things, but on what's on the inside. The character is what makes a man. And because it's character, we're going to see that it's actually something you can grow in. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's aimed at those aspiring to the office of elder. But it's a good guide for all men as it provides excellent insight in what God values for just men in general. So that's what we're studying today. And so Christy read it, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the first thing he says is that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so what are they aspiring to? It's this office of overseer. Perhaps your Bible has a little footnote, then you go down below and it says, or this could be translated bishop. Elsewhere, we're going to see, or it could be translated pastor or elder. All these things are, all these terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. It's this office that's referring to, this position that's held. And I know that some of you think, well, wait, wait, I, I know how this goes, right? You have the pastor, and then you have like the overseers or the, the elder board, or some say like the deacon board, and they support the pastor. It's not what you're going to see here, because the context, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is setting the church up in Ephesus. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 20 that the church, singular, in Ephesus, has elders, plural, many. And in fact, in Acts 20, we see the elders coming together to commission Paul as he continues on in his missionary journey. And so the plurality of elders are praying for him as he's getting sent off. We see that throughout the epistles. They open up, oftentimes Paul opens up to the church in Philippi and the elders who help lead that. Church, singular, elders, plural. And so what we have is a group of men that are responsible for shepherding the flock. For this shepherd, the, the term should conjure up that of, of, of a true shepherd that is overseeing sheep. Someone that is going to oversee sheep is going to feed the flock, guide them. If any of them are hurt or broken, he's going to bandage them, put them back together. He's, he's got the rod and the staff to guide them, but also to correct them. A shepherd would have been responsible for defending against beasts like wolves that would come in and try and take sheep away. So it is with the shepherd of God's flock. And he starts off by saying, if anybody aspires to be an overseer, to be a shepherd, to be a pastor, it's a noble thing. It's an amazing thing. See, I think in Christian subculture, we can begin to think if somebody wants to be in leadership, clearly that's a wrong desire. I mean, if they're wanting to aspire to more leadership, like what is motivating to them to do that? Are they proud? Uh, do they need recognition? And that might be the case for some, but that is not always the case. Some might do it just because they see it's a, a, a noble task that needs to be done. And when you have a proper understanding of a shepherd, of a pastor, or an elder, it's a noble thing. It's like desiring to be a foster parent. It's a noble desire. It's like desiring to be a chaperone for a high school like field trip for your kids. 
I don't know why you would want to do that. It's a noble thing if you want to be on that bus with those kids. Bless you, right, if you're going to do that. It's a noble thing. And when you understand what a shepherd is, it's a servant leadership position. And those aspiring to serve and lay down their life in that way, following the pattern of Jesus, that's a noble thing. And so he says desire, that's a good thing. But it's just the first step. If desire alone isn't enough, he's going to go on to give us a whole list of of character qualities that must match with that desire. And so the following verses reveal the depth of character required for elders and that we as men should constantly be striving for. What does he say in verse 2? He says, again, an overseer, pastor, elder, bishop, must be above reproach. I'm just going to stop there and take it one at a time. I'm going to spend some time on this one because I think our cultural moment kind of necessitates defining above reproach. That term would mean free from guilt, unable to be blamed. Now, that does not mean that a, a pastor is without sin. That's shocking to you. Let me help you understand. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would also include your pastoral office. Just ask my wife. Ask my kids. Like, they know that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, they're not without sin. That's not what he's talking about here. But he's saying above reproach, what this means is is men of character, they don't cover up. They own up to their sin. The psalmist in 139 would say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. What that means, that if we want to be men of character, we're going to confess and own our shortcomings. And in doing so, we're able to make much of Jesus in that moment. Saying, I don't have it all figured out, but thank the Lord, there is one who does. And so, being above reproach, what does that look like? Now here, just want to clarify that we shouldn't reproach or rebuke leaders or anyone for that matter without seeking first to understand. It's going to be on a slide, but James 1.19 says this. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Did you catch it? Maybe you've heard it said like this. You got Two eyes, two ears, and just one mouth. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. See, if we don't take time to listen, we might run the risk of inevitably like fishing a speck of sawdust out of someone's eye while trying to look past the plank in our own eye. It's unwise to go and and confront somebody without first a listening heart. See, Proverbs 18, 17 would say this. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. Is it possible the rebuke you want to bring wouldn't be there if you just had more information? And coming later on in this book, just two chapters later, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 19, he says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's why I'm belaboring this point. When I was a college pastor in our last context, 
I watched an accusation be lobbied against our lead pastor. And honestly, I'm like, well, there might be some element of truth to that. And I just let our pastor just get rebuked by this person, this accuser, just brought this accusation, and I watched him just cut our pastor down. And I stood there and I watched. And treated, I, I think, I wasn't trying to impugn like our pastor, but I treated him as if he was guilty until proven innocent, only to kind of dig around and feel out the accusation and realize it was totally false. And once that was on earth, the accuser, they not only left the group, they left the church like, deuces, we're out. And then the pastor, this strong, like, mountain of a man, godly guy, was almost to a spot of, of just, he was broken and almost in a, like a depressed state. I went to him, I'm like, pastor, what, what's wrong? Like, the accusations weren't proven true. He looked, he said, I've known that all along. I've known they weren't true all along, but the thing that hurts is that nobody stood in the gap for me. And it feels like a hole has been blasted through my chest that those closest to me would entertain those accusations. And so to say that if this is going to be the pattern moving forward, I don't know if I have the strength to endure this. I was studying this out this week and I realized, man, I let him be rebuked and reproached on something that was not fitting, that did not follow the biblical pattern, that I was not... I was quick to, to grab judgment without the information. And I had to call him up, and I'm like, I am so sorry. <laughs> and ask him to forgive me for not standing in the gap. See, an elder is above reproach. If he has confessed and owned and received forgiveness from his sin, above reproach. And he's not worthy of reproach if his preferences don't align with our preferences. Well, I would have done that differently. Well, great. But that's not something we go and we confront people about. We can have different preferences. Don't know if you know this, but we're going to land differently on some of these things moving forward. Not just, just a biblical understanding, but how to even proceed in a, in a post-pandemic kind of culture. We're, our preferences aren't going to align. And I just want to coach us up, understanding that just because someone in leadership or someone else makes a different decision, doesn't mean we need to go correct them and rebuke them. Again, as if we're the bearers of what is true. Even sin, again, talking all of sinful and the glory of God, even sin, prayerfully identified and substantiated, absolutely confront a leader that's in sin. But given how that elder responds, perhaps still is above reproach. If when confronted with their sin, they say, oh, you're so right. Please forgive me and make much of Jesus. I'd argue perhaps that's the best example that they can give. Now, again, I don't want to make a blanket statement. There's some sin that would obviously be able to be forgiven but would be disqualified for the position of leadership. But nonetheless, just want us to have a right perspective. And the true character that he's searching out here is that whenever sin surfaces, we repent. Mature Christians don't cover up. They own up to their sin. And he's going to go on to say an elder must be above reproach, above being corrected, above being blamed in the following areas. We look back at the text, he says he's got to be the husband of one wife. 
Now, is Paul's main point here saying that elders have to be married? Because if in doing so, we'd have to say Jesus couldn't be an elder. Paul couldn't be an elder. And so that's not what he's, he's saying here. He's saying he, the, the potential elder needs to be a one-woman man. Okay? He needs to be saving himself, just one woman. And he's not speaking to polygamy. Polygamy would have been, having multiple wives would have been virtually unheard of in this day and age. But this one-woman man is, is this mentality that says, my eyes are for my wife only. My heart is for her only. I'm saving myself emotionally and sexually for just my wife. Pastor Tom, who I had the privilege of, of being under when I was in Ames as a student, Pastor Tom has been married to his wife, Marie, for nearly 50 years, or over 50 years now at this point. And I heard Pastor Tom pray this prayer. He said, Lord, will you please kill me before I would dishonor my wife? See, adultery was not an option. And Tom is saying, man, Lord, kill me before I would dishonor my wife in that way because I am a, a one-woman man. There's just one for me, and for Tom, it was Marie. For me, it's, it's my wife, and so... It starts with this heart and what I, the thoughts I entertain, what my eyes would, would take in, how I interact with other women. Lord, I want to honor everything for my wife, and this would speak to unmarried men as well. What, what are you, when you are a one-woman man, what it's saying is saving yourself for your wife. You don't know who she is, but are you fully committed to her with what you're doing now? And I just want to preach on this because, honestly, I think the bar is set so incredibly low in our Christian culture that if you would have enough self-control that is referenced in 1 Thessalonians 4 to abstain from sexual immorality, he'd go on in 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, that each of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passionate lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you have enough self-control to not look at pornography and masturbate, and you read your Bible fairly consistently, somehow you've made it into the upper echelon of Christian men. That is our new kind of bar, seemingly, that's been put forth by culture and even perpetuated in the church. Just don't look at stuff on the internet you shouldn't and read your Bible a little bit, and wow, I mean, who does that anymore? Really? Like, is that what the standard has really become? That's certainly not a biblical standard. That's not what God would call you and say, man, if you're lacking self-control, that's what Gentiles do. That's what the heathens would do. No, if God's people, they don't follow by societal standards, biblical standards. The Bible gets to define purity for us. And here we see it's defined as, as a one-woman kind of man. Paul Sabino, who's... My college pastor and pastor in the last context said this to the women in our college ministry. He preached this at our, our college ministry, the Salt Company. I found this so helpful. He said, women, if you're dating or when you start dating a young man, ask him bluntly if he's looking at pornography. And if he says yes, leave him. And if he says no, find out if he lied. And if he did, leave him. If he says no, ask him when the last time was that he viewed anything like that. Ask him what radical steps he's taken in his life to be done with that. Real God-fearing men are radically dealing with everything they put before their eyes. 
I'm just thankful that we're in a context where I know men that are fighting valiantly for their wives, for their purity. And again, this is not done in the spirit of legalism. It's like, well, if I can just be pure, then somehow God will... No, we're only made right because of what Jesus has done. But because we've been made right, we want to pursue holiness as is fitting. We want to be one woman man. And there's freedom in this. Leviticus, I think it's going to be on the screen. You go back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of Scripture. Talks about the freedom there is in obedience, and that's what I want to put before us. He'd say this, if you follow my decrees and carefully obey my commands, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. This idea that there is freedom in purity, and when I just implore young men to walk in purity, I feel like what I'm asking you to do is just not like blow yourself up. Just asking you to have freedom. And he says, when you walk in freedom, what God would have for you, there isn't the guilt. There isn't the shame. And again, the illustration is like there's this yoke of slavery that is on you, which is impurity, which is lack of self-control. And when that is broken and you walk in obedience and it enables you to walk with your head held high, trust me, if you can maintain self-control, be a one-woman man, there's plenty of other things in your life and in my life to go to work on. It's just saying that should be the low-hanging fruit. That shouldn't be the upper echelon of Christianity. And we want to value women. We want to value women in this, in this context. And so we, we can't say, oh, we, we really value women and then go home and look at them, naked images on the internet. Value them, protect them, set a pace, be a one-woman man. He goes on to say, it's not only that, the list continues, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded is not in the sense of alcohol, that's coming later in the list. But this sober-minded means alert and watchful. Sober-minded and self-control really go together. John MacArthur said it like this, A temperate man avoids excesses so he can see things clearly. That clarity of thought leads to an orderly and disciplined life. Men, are you striving to be sober-minded, alert, and watchful? I tell you, as a young guy, sober-minded would not have been a term used for me. Uh, when I was in seminary, though, I had the opportunity to take a uh, religious ethics class. <laughs> okay, walking in the class, everything in my life was black and white, right or wrong, extremes. And uh, sober-minded would not have been the description for me. But I remember being in that class and realizing, actually, there's some gray that exists in the world. Just so you know. And I remember the first time that this hit, and I love our professor, uh, Jeff Dodge, was leading this, this section, I believe. And he said, I'm going to put a scenario before you. A crazed gunman comes to your house, knocks on your door. And I could envision, like, which door he would, a crazed gunman would knock on. And he said, he knocks on your door and asks, and your wife is downstairs. She's downstairs kind of folding laundry, doing something. And asks and looks at you and says, is your wife home? Do you lie or do you tell the truth? Like, well, I know the Bible says I'm not supposed to lie, uh, but, but does that mean, do I lack faith? If I, if I do lie, I, just being perplexed, and, 
<laughs> they're like, okay, uh, if you would lie, go sit on this side of the room. If you tell the truth, go sit on this side of the room. And I remember like sitting on one side of the room and hearing the arguments from the other and literally like picking my chair up and going across. I'm like, I'm on this side now. <laughs> like, just this idea like, are we sober-minded? Can we look at these things and, and ask good questions? I think that our culture is asking us to do that, and I'll reference you to the, the, the guinea pigs, okay? There's a picture of this. I love this. This was shared somewhere, and I love it. Let me see if I can read it. It says, uh, the guinea pig on the left says, you're either with us or you're against us. And the one on the right says, well, what if I don't pick a side, but critically examine both and come to a nuanced, informed, unique, individual opinion? What's the other one's like, kill the traitor. Like, that's not an option. You need to repost that thing now. You need to determine right now. So what if I want to look at the facts? What if I want to consider? What if I want to challenge my preconceived notions? It's like, oh, there's no time for that. You need to be angry, and you need to be angry about it now. And so you see things. Man, have you ever posted something only to come to find out? It's like, actually, that wasn't true. And I'm telling you, some of this sober-mindedness comes with age. You put your foot in your mouth enough, you're like, ah, I'm going to hold off on this. But it's, it can be learned. It can be learned, and you can be more like the guinea pig on the right by exercising a little bit of restraint. And I just would want to invite us to do that, to consider other opinions, to challenge ourselves a little bit. Again, to be sober-minded. And then self-control, this ability to show restraint. John Piper said it like this, America is the first culture in jeopardy of amusing ourselves to death. And the point of self-control is to not strip away everything that we enjoy, but to avoid the excesses that harm. I was able to interact with one of our church members this week. He said, I invested years of my life and who knows how many thousands of dollars on worldly things that have zero eternal value, pursuing an excess of a good thing. In his case, it was a hobby. But it ultimately harmed, harmed his marriage, harmed relationships, and certainly harmed ministry. Are you given to excess? And this is a question for everybody. Excess time on your phone, excess time spent at work, hobbies, excess eating, excess spending, Cultivate self-control. One of the pastors I really respect set the habit of just exercising self-control and fasting one day a week, every week. He said, man, I want to avoid. Another guy I know, pastor, he would say, okay, I'm giving up coffee for this month. You're like, ooh. <laughs> but just saying, I don't want to be addicted to anything, even if it's caffeine. And so I just want to exercise a little bit of self-control. And men, I would just ask, do you have a budget? Do you talk to your spouse about finances? Do you impose some of those rules for screen time and say, men, especially those aspiring to the office of elder, need to show restraint, exercise self-control? And the next thing on the list, he's going to say, in doing those things, that an elder be respectable. Now, that refers to a disciplined life. Respectable is someone who's, who's living wisely. Now think of the opposite of somebody, somebody that is not respectable. Perhaps they're like all disheveled looking, their hair's a mess, like they mismatched everything. 
uh, their life is constant chaos, their projects that they have are all half done, and yeah, they can make like bold declarations, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, but they actually never follow through on them. Respectable men are reliable men. They get the job done. No matter how tired, how dejected, they're going to keep grinding. See, all of us work with the same 24-hour day and 365 days in the year. Just some that are respectable have a lot more to show at the end of that time than others. I think of a guy like Todd Van Voorst, who's a leader in our context, who gets up early, reads his Bible, exercises daily, budgets carefully his finances, gives generously, uses his lunch hours to meet with young men regularly, uses his downtime to help some of those same guys craft their sermons, and he still makes time to lead his children and his wife faithfully. One of the young guys that Todd has been discipling, I said, what would you say about Todd? He said, he's a man who never sacrifices what is most important so that he can sacrifice everything else. Respectable men, it means that you're working out ahead. You're determining the destination and charting a course for that. Not simply reacting all the time to whatever the world throws at you. Do people respect you? And the question is, is not do people like you? They didn't like Jesus a whole lot, right? But do they respect you? Is there a gravitas to the words you say that people want to listen? Do people take you seriously as it should be with those who are respectable? The next thing in the list, and again, all this defining what men should be like, what elders should be like, said hospitable. Now, you've got to understand the context for hospitality. This is before, like, Motel, Motel Aids, Holiday Inn Expresses. Hospitality was something that was, was practiced as people would come to town. And if a Christian would just open up their home, it meant a lot. Because if they went to one of these inns, there was no telling what you were going to get. There was no Yelp reviews that they could look at before they showed up. And so to have those Christians who are hospitable, opening their homes... And that ability to be hospitable comes from an understanding that all we have, all my stuff is God's stuff. My house is God's house. My car, God's car. My money is God's money. What would God have me do with it? And so we ought to see that in church leaders, that there's a selflessness and a hospitality that exudes from them. I just want to just praise God in the same vein, that understanding that all of our stuff is God's stuff. I want you to know that the last two months here at Anthem have been the most generous months in terms of our general giving for the year. <laughs> that despite a pandemic, our people have said with their finances, my trust is in God. And it's so deeply encouraging because, y'all, when we get on the backside of this pandemic, we don't anticipate ministry to have any less needs, to be any less important, and be able to have the financial backing of the church to say, let's go and let's do those things. Just thank you for your generosity that comes from that understanding that all of our stuff is God's stuff. And he's going to say in verse 7, he said, and must be well thought of by outsiders. It's in the same vein. In vetting a man's characters, we should, his character, we should be able to ask his neighbors, what kind of man is he like? We should be able to ask his coworkers, that his clients, what would you say about Todd? Is he a good guy? What would you say about Jay? 
What is he like at work? It's important that, that those that love Jesus, it ought to be evident to our neighbors, to those in the workplace. The next quality, again, trying to wrap this up. There is a lot here, but he says, must be able to teach. And I just want you to understand the context. When we think of teaching, we think maybe, are you using a, a handheld or a headset, or what does that look like? In their context, able to teach, what did that mean? And again, the way that they taught likely was in smaller groups, not on big stages and platforms. But what form of teaching the elders are able to do is subjective. What is objectively clear is that they need to be able to transfer knowledge to other people. That's what teaching is. It's communicating knowledge and helping other people understand that. He doesn't say they have to be this winsome order. It's just said an able teacher is what elders must be. In verse 3, he said, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I'm going to file all those under self-control and keep moving, right? They're pretty self-explanatory. Verse 4, Douglas Wilson, who's a pastor, would call this the neglected qualification. Verse 4, he says, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? See, we care about if a pastor would get drunk, right? We would care about a pastor if he's gambling or if he's bad with money. But what about the pastor whose kid walks away from the Lord? I mean, we even have a term in this. It's like, oh, you're a PK. You're a pastor's kid. That makes sense. Do we care about that, that if a pastor's kid was making bad choice after bad choice? And many of myself was like, well, you know, there is free will, and you can't hold him responsible. I mean, that kid should know better. And we'd say, keep on pastoring, pastor. And there's an element of truth to that. But the callousness that that response indicates towards that child, shouldn't we want our shepherds to be the kind that would leave the 99 to go after the one? But do we put an asterisk? It's like, unless it's his kid. At that point, we'll just let him go to hell. Come on, really? I'm just saying, Doug's argument from this is like, what would it indicate to that child if the dad said, actually, I'm going to put my ministry on hold. Church, I'm going to pursue my child. Could it possibly be that that kid has seen their dad go after broken and hurting people? That's who gets dad's attention. So in my broken and hurting, maybe I'll get dad's attention. And how much more... A child of hell, do we put him on the course if we say, oh, yeah, that gets everybody's attention, but not you, my own flesh and blood. I'm just saying, (laughs) I want to capture the heart of this qualification. I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that, that, oh, an elder just must step down. But the heart behind it, do we have a heart for the pastor to be able to pastor his family? Man, I want to sacrifice for this church, and I want to teach my kids to do the same. But I will not sacrifice my children for this church. And if the show must go on, it will go on without me. Either be granted the freedom to pursue my kids if that time would come, or figure out another way to provide for my family and pursue them because my call is husband, father, pastor, in that specific order. I was meeting with a guy this week 
They mixed that order up. He put ministry before his family. And upon realizing it, he was articulating, he said, I'm nervous. I want to take steps back into ministry, but I know the damage that was done a few years ago from that. And I just don't want anything to come between me and my family. And so I want to serve the church. I want to take some of those steps. But I'm just looking at my heart and saying, am I ready? And I'm just weeping as he's talking. Because I feel it's that heart that has him closer to being back in ministry than perhaps ever before. That his heart is for his family. He says in verse 5, even if someone could, you know, minister apart from his family, he said, you'd be a hypocrite. You'd be teaching, uh, you want to teach your connection group how to pray, but not teach your kids. You want to teach a class how to go share the gospel, but not share the gospel with your children. We'd be a hypocrite at best if we could figure out a way to not minister to our family, but minister to God's family. He's saying, what you do in your family is going to be an indicator of how you lead God's family. And just kind of in winding down, one of the last things he says in, in verse 6, is that an elder, a leader in the church, must not be a recent convert. There ought to be, of all these character things, a provenness over time. A provenness, even... A guy like Matt Dennings, who we hired in, he's not a new convert. But it's this verse that we've used to kind of say, well, but he is new to us. Now, understand, Matt, he's led, he's shepherd, he's eldered in another context for, I think, seven or eight years. But he's new to us. And so Matt came in, hired in January, but he wasn't an elder in this context day one. Absolutely hopeful and expectant. And over the course of the past five months, to see his character be tested. You guys have, have seen perhaps how he's led his family. Now, some of you are limited to what he does for the one hour on a Sunday morning. But getting to walk with him and to see how he loves his wife, leads his children. Honestly, I feel like Lauren, his wife, is like his best thing on his resume. <laughs> Love you, Matt. Lauren, you're awesome. But, but just this idea, just to see Matt. Matt is the one who helped us pursue our neighbors at the beginning of this pandemic. To see how Matt has taught sound doctrine as he's done equipping classes. There's been a provenness that has come out with him. And ask any of our staff what it's like to work with Matt. There's such an encouragement. And I'm excited to put his name now, after months of provenness, before our members as an elder candidate. I think of Scott Gutwine, who's been here for, I think, three years now in the life of our church, leading a connection group the last couple, leading building volunteers to build things. We're seeing his children, Brant and Kenya, lead us in worship. I bet the vast majority of our church has been around Scott's kitchen table, doing lunch with him, seeing how he practices hospitality. The, the character of his wife, Laura, her investment in the college girls that are living in their basement, her pursuit of biblical counseling. Man, it's both of these guys that I'm excited to put before our members as elder candidates. But again, all of this, just kind of in conclusion, we're going to ask godly men to lead, and this is a clear kind of guideline of what godly men ought to look like. And, and Paul would so boldly tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he would say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He would tell the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 9, he said, and the things you've, you've seen me do and you heard me say, 
put those things into practice. See, godly men that are leading the church are just simply following the steps of Jesus. Like tracks in, a, in the snow. No, we don't get a whole lot of snow in Missouri. But if you can just envision that, maybe this. Uh, uh, beach, sand, okay, is that better illustration? It's 91 degrees today. But as you would see those tracks, elders, we don't blaze a new trail. Christian, we don't need to blaze a new trail, but only follow in the footsteps of Jesus, boldly following Jesus where he is leading us, where he is leading the church. And First Peter reminds us, there is but one chief shepherd of Anthem Church. It's Jesus Christ. He is the one that we are following. He is the good shepherd who does all he can for his flock, including lay down his life. It's that understanding that God is sovereignly in control, that Jesus has redeemed us back. It's with that understanding that Paul would say, children, therefore you can obey your parents, knowing God has established him. Wives, you can submit to your husbands. Church, you can follow your leaders because your ultimate trust is not in them, but it's ultimately in the Lord who has established this for his good and for his people. And so, in conclusion, just want to remember, ultimately, that we are all just seeking to follow Jesus and obey his commands and live out what we've seen here. I would just encourage you by way of application, young men, that you would just talk, men in general, that you would just be talking about what we see here and ask the Lord, like the psalmist says, to search your heart and figure what doesn't align with what God would have and let God's standard be the biblical standard by which we seek to align and abide our life with. I'm just going to pray as the band comes up. Jesus, we do thank you for the forgiveness that has shown all of us. Thank you for the grace that is poured out daily. Lord, we do not deserve the favor that you've given us, but just so thankful that you have made us an object of your affection. So, Heavenly Father, we do just pray, as you tell us in Hebrews, we pray for those that lead us, that lead our country, that lead our churches. God, we pray that you would give wisdom that in this time, Lord, we would not look to our own intellect, but we would look to you, that we would follow you and be content in that. And so, Lord, we want to please you in all that we do. And so if there is anything in our lives that is displeasing, that is dishonoring you, God, we want you and we just beg that you would root it out, that you would help us identify it now even as we respond in worship. Would you help root that out and conform us to your image? Because when, when people see us, Lord, we want them, Jesus, to see you. And so would you please continue to sanctify us, mold us into your image, Jesus, that we can make you known. That is the prayer for our leaders and for all the people that claim your name, Jesus. Amen.